Uh, We're going to be doing something a little different today. We're going to be studying three chapters in Scripture. We're looking at 1 Thessalonians chapters 1 through 3. And someone might legitimately ask, why are we studying 1 Thessalonians? We should be studying in these last days the books of Daniel and Revelation. But as I began to study some years ago the book of 1 and 2 Thessalonians, I realized how relevant these two letters are of Paul's to us today. There's section, a, a section in 1 Thessalonians about sanctification and the need to come away from impurity. That's an important message today. Uh, did you know that in 1 Thessalonians, every single chapter ends with the second coming? Look it up. Chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, every single one ends in the last two or three verses with the second coming. And we are Seventh-day Adventists, aren't we? Advent is a part of our name, the coming of of Christ. It's relevant in that regard. If you look at the book of 2 Thessalonians, Paul's second letter to the church at Thessalonica, uh, he also talks about the coming of the lawless one or the Antichrist. That's important to learn about and read today. And what we're going to find in addition to all of those things, what what makes 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians relevant to us living in 2023 is that Paul gives us an incredible strategy for evangelism. And you could also title this uh, message today, Paul's Evangelism Strategy. We've taken the title from the scripture reading, but I think that we need to learn more about how to win souls, don't you? We have a message to share. Do we want to keep this message to ourselves? Of course not. We know that, that we want this message to go to the whole world. And so I think that Paul has uh, something to tell us today about uh, evangelism and how to go about it. So I'm looking forward to our study today in the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're not going to look at everything. We're going to look at some different phrases and words that Paul uses in the first three chapters, but I think that God will bless us as we open up his word. So let's go ahead and bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the privilege that we've had already to worship you. Thank you for the music and the scripture, and the songs, and the stories. And Father, as we open up these sacred pages of scripture, we are specifically asking for your Holy Spirit. We recognize that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And we cannot grasp the lessons you have from scripture without your help. So we invite you to be here with us once again as we open up the Bible, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus And all of God's people said, amen. I'll never forget the first Bible study that I gave to somebody in the community. I'll never forget it. I was attending Southern Adventist University, not too far away from here. And I was a freshman there at Southern Adventist University. And I got involved with what I think is one of the best clubs on campus. And that was the Bible Work Club. Doesn't that sound exciting? That's a good club to be a part of. And I met some people in the Bible Work Club, and I ended up meeting uh, one of the trainers uh, in this Bible Work Club. Her name was Diana Santos. And interestingly enough, later on down the road, Diana ended up helping me get my first job as a pastor because she had Bible worked out in Fallbrook, California. So she played a part of the story there. But she was training students, she was a student herself, on how to give Bible studies at Southern. And so there was somebody in the community, I've forgotten her name now, but she signed up 
for Bible studies. And Diana and I went, and Diana told me, I'll go to the first Bible study with you, and then afterwards you can take it from there. And she had given us material to, to study with, and, and I was excited, but I, w- I was nervous. Even though I was a theology major, I had not had a lot of experience or practice giving Bible studies to people in the community. And so I was looking forward to it, but nervous. And the first Bible study went relatively well. There was a lady and her daughter there. You could tell that the mother was a lot more interested than the daughter. The, the daughter was there kind of for moral support. And it was so exciting to see this mother get excited about Scripture. It was exciting to see this woman sit down, and as we're going over what the Bible teaches about the love of God, and and we went over Daniel chapter 2 in the first study and talked about how prophecy can uh, not only, you know, uh, let us know what's going to happen in the future, but can give us confidence that the God of the Bible is a God we can trust. And to see the the light that went on in this lady's eyes and her heart, and, and she was just into the Bible, And I learned after that first Bible study that evangelism was, and we don't use this word often for evangelism, I'm going to use it here, it was addicting. Can we use that word? We know what that word means. Evangelism was addicting. It was something that I couldn't help but do again. Wow. Here I was just simply explaining in a very, uh, probably not the best way to this lady. I tried my best, but she was just enthralled with the God of Scripture and what she was learning. And so we went to the second lesson, the third lesson, and and she was eating up this material that we know well as Seventh-day Adventists. Friends, do we have a message that is worthy to be shared? Yes. Praise God. And here's this lady in the community, and, and we're studying together, but I quickly found out that Satan doesn't want the message of salvation and a soon coming Savior to be shared. He doesn't want it. There's a great controversy around us, a battle that we're facing every single day. And I quickly found out that the devil was just as involved, unfortunately, in this process as God was and I was. Because he did not want this lady to learn Bible truth. And when we got to the Sabbath, it was about the fifth or sixth Bible study that we did, and this lady's daughter, not the lady, not the mother, but the lady's daughter was nervous from the beginning. And when we hit the Sabbath, you could tell all over this daughter's face that she did not like what she was hearing. They were committed Christians and attending uh, their church faithfully on a regular basis. And the daughter was starting to pick up, you know, some information that we're not just your regular church. And when we got to the Sabbath, uh, this daughter was not happy. And afterwards, even though the mother asked a lot of questions, she was interested in it. Afterwards, about an hour after I left, I got a phone call from the mother and she said, please don't come back again. And I tried to reason with her. I tried, well, why don't we do this? I can drop off the studies. And you could tell that her daughter had a lot of influence on her. And she said, do not step foot on my property again. She was serious. And that broke my heart as a young man in college as I was sharing Bible truth with someone from the community, recognizing that the devil doesn't like it. But also that giving Bible studies and sharing this message of faith 
is one of the most exciting things. And, and this lady, I had a burden for her just in those few days that we studied, those few weeks that we studied, I would pray for her on a regular basis. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. In Acts 17, we find a similar process to what I just told you. We see the great controversy surrounding evangelism in Acts 17. In Acts chapter 17, we find why and how the church at Thessalonica started. Acts chapter 17. Here is the history of this small fledgling church in Thessalonica. Acts chapter 17. Verse 1 says, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Do you see that? Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them. And for how many Sabbaths? Does it say 10 Sabbaths? Does it say 20 Sabbaths? No, three. Three. Three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Amen? That's the gospel. Saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Wow. Paul is on his second missionary journey here. I know this is a small map that we find. But you can see here, Paul, second missionary journey, made a long journey to many places. Thessalonica is up here, the left-hand upper corner of your screen. And you can see some of the places that he went to prior to Thessalonica. Philippi passed through a couple of cities that are mentioned there. Afterwards, he goes to Berea. But Paul did a lot of traveling. He went through a lot of stress and heartache. If you want to read an exciting book, read the book of Acts. I mean, there's shipwrecks and snake bites, and there's all sorts of things in the book of Acts that Paul went through for the sake of the gospel. And here he is coming into Thessalonica, knowing there's going to be a challenge. Because something that you learn from the book of Acts is that the devil always has his hand when the gospel is being shared. Trying to stop it, trying to distract, trying to lead people away. But look at verse 4. Praise God for this. Look at verse 4 of chapter 17. It says, some of them were, what's that word? Persuaded. Good. Amen. When we preach the Bible and Bible truth, every single time, friends, that I've seen evangelism done, there is always a seed planted and someone is persuaded, you know what, I want to be part of this church. Some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Here is the history of this early church. But unfortunately, we find that that's not all that happened. Look there in verse 5. It says, but the Jews who were not persuaded, unfortunately there was a large group that were not persuaded, became envious. They took some of the evil men from the marketplace. They gathered a mob. They set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. This Thessalonica mob tried to get rid of the missionaries and they rushed into Jason's house. Jason was whom Paul and Silas were staying with and dragged him into the streets. And after a, a hasty consultation with Jason, they ended up uh, allowing him to post bond and he was released. And meanwhile, the believers there in Thessalonica, they end up hiding Paul and his companions. 
they hid them until dark, and they eventually set them to go to Berea, which is about 45 miles away to the southwest. Some of you remember Berea. In Berea, Paul and Silas had a much more receptive audience. The Bereans loved the Word of God, and they studied daily, the Bible says. But even though Paul and Silas had left their city, the unbelieving Thessalonian Jews were not satisfied. And they even traveled to Berea following the missionaries, trying to stir up trouble there. But the Berean believers smuggled Paul to the coast and ended up boarding a ship there to Athens. And that's the church in Thessalonica. Paul is just there for how many Sabbaths? Three Sabbaths. But he preaches the word of God. He explains from Scripture who Jesus is. He looks at the Old Testament and says, listen, this Christ whom we've been talking about is the Messiah. And some are persuaded, but there's controversy surrounding it. The devil is not happy, and he tries to bring up more controversy there. Now, what's fascinating to me about this little small church that Paul started is that even though Paul was there for three weeks, we don't see evidence in Scripture of more time than that. He was just there for three Sabbaths. It could have even been less than three weeks. We don't know what day he got there before that first Sabbath and when he left after that next Sabbath. Maybe it was, you know, a, a little over two weeks. Those three Sabbaths and maybe a little time in between. But he wasn't there very long. But what's fascinating to me is that when you read the book of First Thessalonians, it sounds as if Paul knew these people his entire life. I mean, when you read the book of First Thessalonians, Paul is saying things like, he loved these people. I mean, I, I've been here. I counted. I was looking at a calendar. This is my 13th Sabbath at Hendersonville. But, you know, it's taken some time, right? Finally, after a few months, we're getting to know each other and, and we're sharing experiences together. But it takes time to get to know people. Imagine after just three interactions with my spouse prior to us getting married, right? There was a good year and a half between us meeting and getting married, there was a lot of time that we got to know each other. Imagine just three weeks into it, I was smitten for her. I love this woman. Hey, will you marry me? Let's spend the rest of our lives together. I love you so much. A little, little too soon, Jeff. Let's give a little more time. You would expect that Paul, after just spending three Sabbaths with these people that he had never met in his entire life, you would expect the language to be maybe more pastoral. Hey, I'm praying for you. But I want us to look very carefully and invite you to turn now in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. I want us to look very carefully at the language that Paul uses. And 1 Thessalonians is different than many of Paul's letters. If you read all of Paul's letters, and Paul's uh, writings take up almost 60% of the New Testament. He has a lot of material in the New Testament, constantly writing letters to people. And most of his letters, he spends maybe a few paragraphs, maybe a few verses, maybe the first chapter talking about the relationship that he had with these people, how he cared about them. But 1 Thessalonians is different. He spends over half of the book, the first three chapters, he never once gives them advice in the first three chapters. He doesn't give them admonition or, hey, this is what you need to be working on. He does not chapter 4 and 5, 2 Thessalonians he does as well. But the first three chapters, 
right, that's, excuse me, 1,035 words in chapters 1 through 3, only 805 words in chapters 4 and 5. So clearly the majority of this letter is spent in Paul just talking to these people about how much he cared for them. It's interesting. And I want to look at several different verses and language that's being used because he repeats himself several times. We want to look at some phrases here in chapters 1 through 3 that I believe can give us an evangelism strategy that can help us as we meet with people as well. And I've lumped together various phrases or principles in these first three chapters, but we're going to look at ten phrases or principles that I believe strongly communicate that Paul held an unusual amount of love and care for people that he only known for three weeks. So here we go, and we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we'll just look there in verse 2, right off the bat. Notice what Paul says, we give thanks to God always for you. Now, that's something that he says often, we give thanks to God for you. Maybe that's something that's maybe a little more normal to say, but Paul repeats himself time and time again. Verse 13 of chapter 2, look at chapter 2, verse 13. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. We thank God all the time. He says it again in chapter 3 and verse 9. Look over chapter 3 and verse 9. For what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God? Three different times in these opening chapters, he says, man, I, I just thank God for you. You know, a Bible prophecy seminar is often the same amount of time that Paul spent with these people. Often our seminars and series are three weeks. And I've met a lot of different people as I've done evangelism. And could I say, like Paul, the first time after meeting someone, and there's a lot of different people in our world. Some people are easier to love than others. Isn't that true? And imagine this person you've never met before. You meet them, you spend a little time with them, and you go home, and you write them this letter and say, I can't thank God enough for you. I just really enjoyed meeting you. What if every person that we came in contact with, we had the same type of experience with? We got their contact info, and we texted them afterwards and said, I really enjoyed meeting you. It was a pleasure. The pleasure was all mine. That's someone that you want to spend time with. If you got a text message from somebody that said, hey, I really enjoyed meeting you today at the store, that would encourage them, wouldn't it, friends? Paul thanked God all the time for them. There's many more. Let's continue uh, in these chapters. Let's look uh, again at chapter 1, verse 2, and notice the next part of the phrase. We already read the first part, we give thanks to God always for you, but notice the next half of verse 2. Making mention of you in our prayers. Paul was praying for them. He makes mention of them in his prayers, okay? I pray for people that I study with. Uh, there's not anything too abnormal about that. But notice chapter 3 and verse 10. Night and day. That's a little different than making mention of them. He says night and day. Not just when he's awake. At night time. Night and day. Praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. One of the most powerful sermons I ever heard was by the former Michigan Conference president named Jay Gallimore. And in this presentation, Elder Gallimore 
appealed to those that were listening to pray more fervently for the people that they were interacting with in the community. And I was convicted after that presentation that I don't pray enough for people that I meet. I don't pray enough. That I meet people here and there, and yes, I might mention them maybe with my kids, or hey, let's pray for our our, our neighbor. But Paul was praying day and night for these people that he only spent a few weeks with. And Paul recognized something, that prayer makes a huge difference in evangelism. That prayer makes a huge difference when we're sharing the gospel. One of my favorite quotes, we're told that communion with God will impart to the minister's efforts a power far greater than the influence of his preaching. Far more important than any wisdom or eloquent thing I can say or you can say is the Holy Spirit reaching their hearts. And in the great controversy that we are living in, friends, I am imploring my church family today that we need to pray all the time for people that we come in contact with. You meet someone once, get their name and start praying for them. Pray for them day and night. A few years ago, at a church I was pastoring, our church split into small groups and we began studying the book, Steps to Personal Revival. I know that many of you appreciate that book here. It's a book about the Holy Spirit. And, and we had four or five small groups. And as a church, we started praying daily for the Holy Spirit. And God began to do things in this little small church that I was pastoring at. Uh, a couple that hadn't been to church in a long time. They were members there, hadn't come back. We started praying for the Holy Spirit, and suddenly this couple shows up. Is that a coincidence? Of course not. In addition, that couple heard as I was announcing, hey, we're starting small groups. We had started praying for the Holy Spirit prior to that, and this couple had not been to church in a long time and said, hey, we'll host a group in our home. Praise God. And as the Small groups continue, and as God continues to work in this young couple's life, God uh, started doing things in their lives. And I love the testimony that this lady shared. She shared it in our small group. She said, you know, for the first time in about two years, I'm actually getting a lot of sleep. So what's going on? She said, I have incredible and terrible anxiety. I have so much anxiety. I've tried everything for my anxiety. I've tried pills. I've tried all this stuff. And... Because of this small group, for the last couple of weeks, I've been praying daily for the Holy Spirit. And finally, I'm getting some sleep at night because I don't have any anxiety. And she said, I think it's because of the Holy Spirit. There was another man who shared a church. You know, we've been praying daily for the Holy Spirit. And he said, you know, I have an hour drive to work every day. Californians are crazy. They drive an hour to work every day. Wild. He drives an hour to work one way. And he says, I used to listen to the radio But as I daily started praying for the Holy Spirit, I was convicted to start praying during that time. And he told us, in our front of our small group, he says, I have a whole lot less road rage than I used to. I used to get mad at drivers and be upset, but I don't have that anymore. And after this time of of us praying for the Holy Spirit, we ended up doing evangelism. And there was this two girls that ended up getting baptized. Their name was Randy and Chantel. They were cousins. And... These two young girls, their story is incredible, and I can't share all the details, but make a long story short. These two young girls are 16 years old, living in a rough neighborhood in San Bernardino, California, 
and they get a flyer in their mail for a Revelation series. And what public high school students say, yeah, I want to go to that. But they did. This is during the time of COVID. And here we were, you know, these two young girls, and this is all online. And I start seeing the, the YouTube chat, Randy and Chantel, answering every question, interacting with this series. And eventually, you know, we give them a gift for winning something, and I drop it off at their house, and I get to meet them in person. And after the series was done, we started doing Bible studies with them. And praise God that these two girls ended up getting baptized in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now, as we've already talked about, does the devil like it when people start learning about Jesus? No. And sadly, after about a year, we tried so many things to keep these two young girls, and and slowly they drifted off, and we worked with them, and we had mentors that would meet with them, but just the pull of the world is strong. We need to pray for our young people, don't we, friends? But about two years, or maybe a year after that, so about a year, they ended up kind of drifting off, and then a year after that, the church again started praying fervently for the Holy Spirit. We had a 6 a.m. prayer call for four days. We did a 40 days of prayer. Every morning, there was about 25 of us that would wake up at 6 a.m. for 40 days praying for the Holy Spirit, praying for God to work in our church. And not long after that, Chantel, her grandmother, ends up calling a contact that she had made at the church and says, hey, I know we haven't been to church in a while, but the Holy Spirit told me to go back to church. And they went back to church because of prayer, friends. It was all when we as a group of people said we need to start praying for people. And I believe, friends, that Paul is on to something here when he says I'm praying day and night. The reason this church had any thriving or any progress at all was because there was someone that was praying for them. And I pray, friends, that we can continue to pray for people. And this one's interesting. Number three, he desired to be with them. There's a lot of phrases here in Chapter 2, verse 8. And actually, you know, go ahead and look there in your Bibles. Chapter 2, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8, he starts out by saying, So affectionately longing for you. Now, I love adverbs. Adjectives are good, but adverbs are even better because they describe verbs and adjectives, right? Affectionately, he was longing for them. That's a good thing. But he's affectionately longing for them. It's a difference affectionately longing for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives because you had become dear to us. In three weeks' time, Paul had just met these people, but he says, I longed for you affectionately. You became dear to us. Friends, as we are going through this, I believe that God gave Paul a special love for people, and he can give that same love for us, for people as well. Look at this language. Chapter 2, verse 17. But we, brethren, have been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Endeavored more eagerly. Where's the adverb? Eagerly. How? To see your face with great desire. He wanted to be with them. Chapter 2, 18, therefore we wanted to come to you. Chapter 2, verse 20, you are our glory and joy. Chapter 3, verse 9, praying exceedingly that we may see your face. Time and time again, Paul demonstrates that he actually wanted to be with these people. And I will be the first to admit, because of my selfish heart, there are people that I meet that I don't always want to be around. And I'm sure you could say the same as well. 
But here Paul, despite the difficulties with these people, said, I desired to be with you. You know, I believe, friends, there's something that we can do to communicate that we enjoy being around them. I'll never forget a class that I took at Southern from Doug Tilstra. And this class was called Interpersonal Ministries. And they actually teach theology students on how to listen to people. Something that impressed me, not just about this class, but about the person, Dr. Tilstra, was there was one day I was walking down the hallway. I had my backpack on. I was going to class. And I saw Dr. Tilstra coming the other way. And he was a man on a mission. You remember college of professors. I got somewhere to go. And he had another class to teach. But he saw me and he said, oh, hi, Jeff. And I had my backpack on and I kept on going, hey, how you doing, Dr. Tilstra? Thinking that's all that he had time for. But Dr. Tilstra paused and he says, hey, how are you doing? And right after that question, he took his backpack off and he set it down up against the hallway and kind of leaned back against the wall. Now, what kind of body language does that communicate versus, hey, how are you doing, Jeff? Oh, how, how are you doing? Hey, right? That's a lot different setting down the backpack, kind of crossing arms, hey, how are you doing? I knew that Dr. Chilstra actually wanted to hear how I was doing. And I believe, friends, that too many of us are so busy, including myself, as we're rushing about town and going from place to place that we don't have time for people. And I believe that God is trying to tell us as a people that in order to do evangelism, in order to share this message that we so love, that we need to communicate that we actually want to be with people. Not that we just want to rush off to the next thing. Not that we're looking at our watches or our phones and, hey, I've got something to go, but that we sit down and, hey, tell me about you. Something that I've tried to do even at stores is just mentioning people's names. You know, at Walmart, they all have their name tags. And looking them in the eye and saying, hey, Lucy, thank you so much for serving me today. People are surprised. Wow. And I believe, friends, that God wants to give us that same desire to be with people. Notice this next phrase here. Twice Paul uses language that communicates that he cared for them like a parent. Notice chapter 2 and verse 7. The Bible says, But we gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Friends, do mothers have a special regard for their kids? Of course. And they also have supersonic ears. It's amazing. The other day, we were uh, at uh, some friend's house having supper. And my wife suddenly hears the kids who are in the front playing. And she hears Eden, you know, kind of yell out. I did not hear it whatsoever. But her ears, she pauses, right? Uh, Moms have a way of connecting with kids. And Paul tells the church at Thessalonica, we were gentle among you as a mother with children. We cared about you that much. But not just a a mother. Look at chapter 2 and verse 11. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. So Paul recognizes, you know, sometimes children need a good father figure in their life to give them some discipline and tell them this is what needs to happen. I often remember my dad growing up and he was an incredible caring gentle father but he wasn't afraid to let Jeff know that he was in the wrong and yes I got spanked as a child and yes I got the belt pulled out as a kid. My dad cared about me he comforted he charged me 
Something my dad always told us growing up. I think I've shared this with you before, but I remember this. When we, as children, began to become worried about material things. I want to buy this. I want to buy this. He would always say, kids, it's all going to burn one day. It's all going to burn one day. There's things that I remember from my dad exhorting and charging us. And, and Paul did the same with these people. He cared about them as a parent. You know, just a few weeks ago, many of you, some of you, were at the memorial service for David and Barbara Prest. Now, I just got here to this church, had never met either of them, unfortunately. But I was incredibly moved at that memorial service. My family was up in Michigan visiting some friends, so I was here by myself, just sitting there in the back, listening to people after people, and many of you are here today, come up and share how that couple had impacted them. And several of the testimonies that were shared shared things like, you know what, the press were like parents to us. They were like a mother and father that, that we never had or, or that we hadn't had in a long time. They cared about us. They invited us over for meals. They were constantly talking to us and, and praying for us. And because of their motherly and fatherly influence, there are several that are in our church today because of them. And I believe, friends, that God wants us to be like Paul, to be like the press to other people, to be like a mother and father to people. Some of us rush about our business and don't have any interaction with people at all during the week. Nothing. And if I could boldly say we live selfish lives because we go from work to home and there's so much going on and then church is pulling me here that, that we don't have a chance to interact with people and God is wanting us, I believe, friends, to parent people like a mother and father, to be gentle with them. And many of us who are parents right now, God has given us people in our own homes to do these same things. As I was reading through this list and, and exploring 1 Thessalonians 1 through 3, God was convicting me, these 10 principles aren't just for people in the community, but for our people in your own home, my kids. I need to apply these to them as well. Number five, notice chapter three, verse one, Paul says, therefore we could no longer endure it. We thought it be good to left Athens alone and sent Timothy. But he uses that phrase, we could no longer endure it. We had to hear about you. We, we couldn't stand it. Look at verse 5. He says something similar. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith. Paul couldn't stand not hearing about them. And I love that. Here he is talking to these people that he's met just a little bit ago, and he only saw them for three Sabbaths. Maximum three weeks. And he says, I can't stop yeah, I just can't stand it. i got to know how you're doing. He cared about them that much. When you use that language, you obviously love someone a lot. Look at number six. Paul tirelessly and boldly shared the gospel with them. Notice, uh, and you can turn your Bibles, if you will, chapter 1, verse 5. But it says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much, what's that word? assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Paul wasn't just there to become their friends. He wasn't just there to, you know, uh, put their arms around them and, hey, let, let's go eat some cake together. No, Paul knew that he had a mission. He loved them so much, he loved them enough to say, you know what, I got to tell you about something that will radically change your life. You're going to love it, the gospel. He tirelessly and boldly shared the gospel. 
He says the same thing in chapter 2, verse 2. He says, we were bold to speak the word of God. In the same verse, he says, we spoke the word of God in much conflict. Chapter 2, verse 9 says, laboring night and day. He prayed night and day, and he labored night and day. We preached to you the gospel of God. Friends, we have a purpose in this world, not just to become their friends, but to share with them and disciple them toward Jesus, tirelessly and boldly sharing the gospel with them. Notice number seven, he gave not only his words, but his whole life to them. Verse eight, so affectionately longing for you, we are very well pleased to impart to you, not just the gospel, not just words, we didn't just preach to you, but we gave you our our lives. We gave you everything that we were because you had become dear to us. I believe, friends, that God is desiring for us to do the same with people, to give them everything we are. And we see that time and time again in Paul's life. He was willing to endure hardship for the sake of the gospel. Number eight, make every word and action count. Back to chapter one and verse five. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and much assurance. As, notice this last part, we read the first part already. As you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. They had a purpose. They made every word and action count. Look at chapter 1 and verse 9. The Bible says, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. What kind of manner of entry? What kind of people we were around you. And then look at chapter 2 and verse 11. As you know how we exhorted and comforted, and that's not chapter 2, verse 11, but how devotely and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves. I'm not sure which verse that is. Help me out. What verse is that one? Verse 10. Thank you. Not verse 11. Appreciate that. So verse 10. You are witnesses in God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believed. Making every word and action count. Not just saying, hey, I'm going to do this uh, to be their friend, but making every word and action count. And what I love about this, friends, is that I believe that Paul lived a life of purpose. And his, sometimes actions speak louder than words. I have a, a picture on the screen here. It's kind of blurry. Um, but these two boys, I, I couldn't find a picture of this lady, but these two boys to the right of my boys. So there's Judah and Levi. And they were doing some community service, I think, with some backpacks But the two boys to the right, uh, they were the only picture I could find of this family. Their grandmother, her name is Linda, and Linda has an incredible story. She walked into this church in Highland, California, and before I got there, she walked in this church and started just becoming part of the church. And when I got there, I was asking everyone, who is that lady? And no one really knew. Unfortunately, the church hadn't done a great job of getting to know her. And, And so as I'm hearing her story, I'm amazed. And make a long story short, there are these two boys, uh, Ethan and Nathan, they had uh, gotten adopted by their grandmother, essentially, and so that was kind of their mom, because uh, their mom has a, a rough life. But their grandmother, Linda, she one day decided, I want to know who my people are. She was adopted, and she had grown up with a very loving, adoptive family, but she wanted to know about her lineage and her history and, and who her relatives were. So she ends up taking uh, one of those DNA tests called 23andMe. Some of you have uh, maybe done that before, seen who your relatives are. And, you know, sometimes nothing comes up. But as she does this test, it tells her that she has a distant relative or some relative living in New Mexico. 
And that relative in New Mexico had also done a 23andMe DNA test. And that's how these DNA tests, you know, had brought these two people together. And so she contacts this lady in New Mexico whose name was Carla, Carla Chavez. And Carla is living there in New Mexico, and they end up being half-sisters, right? And, you know, uh, Linda is just amazed, like, wow, I actually have, you know, someone that's a blood relative, and she wants to hear her whole story. She didn't know, you know, why she got adopted, so they end up meeting each other, and she ends up just bonding with this half-sister and a lot of the family, and she ends up hearing the whole story of how she, you know, why she got adopted and, and all these different things. Well, the beautiful part about the story is that Carla was a Seventh-day Adventist. And there she was living in New Mexico, and her half-sister contacts her, and Carla, I believe, made every word and action count, just like Paul did. And she didn't shy away from the fact that she, you know, was a believer and loved God and was a Seventh-day Adventist, but she didn't also, you know, push it in Linda's face. She didn't want to, you know, uh, try to force her new half-sister to believe what she believed. But Linda started noticing when she went to New Mexico to spend time with them that they were different. Like, for example, on Saturday, you know, they wouldn't go out to eat and they wouldn't go to the store and just they did things a little differently and they started talking about their church and and Linda was a very quiet person about her beliefs. So they never talked about it. But one day, Linda, who's living as a teacher in San Bernardino, shows up to this Seventh Avenue church in, in Highland that I became the pastor of because of her sister Carla. And she says, I want to know what these people believe. She doesn't even tell her sister Carla about what she was doing, but she shows up one Saturday morning and starts attending this church on a regular basis. And eventually, when I heard her story, we ended up studying together, and she ended up getting baptized. We baptized her two grandsons, and she's a faithful Seventh-day Adventist, praise God. And I believe that story, and obviously it's the power of the Holy Spirit and God bringing all this together, but in addition, it shows what Paul did, making every word and action count, that Carla was unashamedly who she was, her half-sister. And I believe, friends, that God desires us to make every word and action count. Number nine. Paul patiently worked with their weaknesses to make them stronger. Notice chapter 3 and verse 5. Chapter 3 and verse 5 says, For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. Paul knew that a new believer is a baby Christian, and they just like baby children, need to be watched for and cared for and taken care of. Not too long ago, our little daughter Eden placed her hand on a little cast iron fireplace. And you know what? We were right there and she did it before we could, you know, do anything. But did we as parents, right, uh, uh, after that, use that as a teaching moment? We had told them many times before and she didn't even really mean to do it. But we brought Eden alongside and said, Eden, Please, you can't touch us. And, and we use that as a moment to say, you know, we don't want her to get hurt again. When we do that with, with Christians, friends, the same thing needs to happen. People that are new in the faith, they need to be walked with, don't they? They need to be instructed, and they need to be spent time with. And Paul did that. He sent Timothy to establish them and encourage them to continue your faith. He couldn't be there, so he sent someone else. And then he wanted to perfect what was lacking in their faith. This couple here... Their names are Santiago and Annette, and this was a Zoom Bible study uh, that we had once. 
But make a long story short, and I wish I could tell you more of their story, but Santiago and Annette had gotten a flyer in the mail about a Bible prophecy seminar that was being held just down the street at this same Seventh Adventist church in Highland, and a Bible worker named Nick had showed up at their door and invited them, but they were going to be gone for 75% of it, so they weren't that interested, but they kept the flyer and they thought it was interesting. They go to their event. They had a family event in Texas. They get back. There's only one week left of this Bible prophecy seminar. And Nick, the Bible worker, praise God, was convicted to go back to their house and invite them even though much of it was over, which usually doesn't happen. Usually you work with the people that you get in the first part of the Bible prophecy seminar. But he went back and they said, oh, I'm so glad you came. We had this flyer and we wanted to come, but we were nervous because we, we knew it was almost over. And Nick said, no, no, please come. So they ended up coming. And the night that they came was the night that the evangelist was talking about baptism. Now, these are brand new, not just Adventists, but Christians, right? They knew they wanted more of God in their life, but they know hardly anything at all. And that night, they make a decision, we want to be baptized. Very first time they step into the church, we want to be baptized. We knew they weren't quite ready yet. So like uh, Paul did, let me go back, as we worked with this family, it took a, a good solid year. But after a year, and I wish I had more pictures, but this couple who were living with each other, they ended up getting married. After a year, this couple were making changes in their family's home. Their children were excited about coming to church. And just before I came out here, December of 2022, they got baptized as Seventh-day Adventists. Um, and the reason I bring them up under number nine, because this family, there was a lot of patience, right? When they came in, they did not look like anyone else at that church. They didn't talk like anyone else at the church, but they had a desire to love God. And I'm so thankful, friends, that this church is like this, that we can be a church family, that we don't care what you look like, you come in and worship with us, and we want to teach you about Jesus. And I believe, friends, that we can be exhorted as a church family to be patient with people's weaknesses just like Paul was. And finally, and this is where our scripture comes from, and I invite you to turn with me in your Bible because this verse, as I was studying 1 Thessalonians, God just impressed upon my heart and I was just really moved by this verse. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 19. Chapter 2 and verse 19. Paul says, as he's writing to the church at Thessalonica, these people that he's met three weeks, but he loves them, he cares about them. And notice what he tells these people. He tells these people, what is my hope? What is my hope? What is my joy? What is my crown of rejoicing? Now, if we just stopped right there and thought about those words, what is your hope? What's something that just brings you joy? What's your crown of rejoicing? If someone asked me that apart from church or, you know, apart from spirit, if someone just asked me, what makes you happy? Or I could list a lot of things. I love my family. I love spending time with my family. They're my, my hope and joy for sure. I love outdoors. I love hiking and, and backpacking. That brings me a lot of joy. I enjoy sports. I love playing golf and, and basketball. That, that brings me joy. What gets you excited? Some people love birding. Right? Uh, some of you uh, love looking at birds, and that makes you excited. What is your prized possession? If someone asks, what's your prized possession? Maybe it's your, your house or your car or something that you own, something tangible and physical. Paul says something interesting. He says, my hope, 
my joy, my crown of rejoicing, the thing that would make me the happiest, the thing that would move me the most, the thing that would bring me the most joy is if you showed up at the second coming of Jesus. That is what would bring me the most joy in my entire life. Forget everything else in this world. The thing that would make me most happy is your presence at the coming of Jesus Christ. And I believe, friends, that is what needs to move us in our evangelism moving forward. That as we work with people, as we study with them, we look them in the eye and say, I want for you the best in the world. I I want for you, more than anything else, to be at the second coming. We want this for our children. As As I thought about this verse and said, you know what, this is what I want for my kids. More than anything else in the entire world, what would give me the most hope and joy, my crown of rejoicing, is to see my three children, Judah, Levi, and Eden, there when Jesus comes back. And I pray, friends, that as we meet people in the community, that God would place people on our hearts. I pray that we would leave this sanctuary today, April, what is that, 22, April 22, 2023. We would leave this sanctuary with a determined purpose to say, God, send me someone that I can love like Paul loved. Send me someone from the community that I can care about, that I can parent like a mother or father, that I can study with, that I can share the gospel with, that I can be patient with their weaknesses, that I can zealously desire to be in heaven. Send me someone, and I promise you that God will. If every single church member prayed that prayer, I guarantee you this place would continue to explode even more than it already is. Paul teaches us a lot here, and I pray with all of my heart that we can be a people whose work is inspired by leading other people to join us on our journey to heaven.